From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, April 8th. What's the perfect thing that you could come across by accident at night driving down a two-lane highway? For fans of folklore, it's Desert Oracle Radio, created, written, produced, and performed by the one Ken Lane. His home desert is Joshua Tree, California, but KZMU listeners may have caught him live here in Moab over the weekend. The writer was in Canyon Country to share stories live in person and over the airwaves. We sat down with him for an interview where we get into the hot topics, like his favorite desert animal. We'll air that whole thing sometime soon, but I thought today we'd hear an excerpt, because Lane is a longtime creative artist on this medium. So in advance of our Radio Play Festival tomorrow night and our upcoming Radiothon fundraiser, let's hear a few relevant thoughts from him on the subject. All right, tell me when we're going. Are we going? We're going. Oh, yeah, look at that. I'm looking right at the tracks. <laughs> My name is Ken Lane, and I am the host of Desert Oracle Radio and the editor of the magazine of the same name. I want to ask you about your voice. Um, you said you've been in radio since high school. How did you develop your current voice with Desert Oracle and your presence on the radio? When I first did radio, and I've, this is really the first time I've done radio full time. Okay. I've done radio a little here and there over the years. Um, I tried to have a, a DJ voice, uh, an announcer voice. Right. And especially when you're a teenager, you know, you need to adopt a voice because... Uh, you don't you don't really have one yet. Some people do. Some lucky people do. But years at when was this? In the mid nineteen nineties, I ended up owning a radio station in uh, the former Yugoslav uh, Republic of Macedonia. And my partner and I, uh, my partner uh, Samet, uh, um, Albanian Muslim from North Macedonia right there next to Kosovo, and I, in our uh, great uh, market research, decided that we would make it kind of a country station. (laughs) And this was based on, I think, about two conversations with uh, Serbian and Macedonian truck drivers that they all loved to drive trucks. When they drove their trucks, they loved to be listening to Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings and Dolly Parton and that kind of stuff. It's sort of global trucker music. And we thought, great, let's do that. So since we were illegal, uh, we rented space from the antenna space from the Romany radio station in Skopje, which was also illegal. But... uh, This guy paid off whoever he needed to pay off. So we were kind of protected by him. And I just sit in there by myself wondering, even if anyone's listening, and how many many people are uh, English speakers? Certainly some, but that was not the primary second language, language for Yugoslavia. It was German. So you'd speak... Serbian or Croat or Slovenian or whatever. And then you speak German after that because that was the cross Europe language. And then after that, you might have Russian or you might maybe have English. All the nerds spoke English because they got the bootleg sci-fi movies, you know, Star Wars and Blade Runner and everything. 
And so sitting at the board in the middle of the night in this small capital town, I just started talking like I would be telling stories sitting around at a bar with friends. And I found it very comfortable. Mm -hmm. But it took another almost 20 years until I had a a way to do that on on the radio of uh, on a regular basis because nobody hires you to do that. Yeah. And then I realized that all my favorite voices in radio, the ones that resonate with me, were these sort of fringe figures like that, like Joe Frank out of uh, KCRW who did these sort of uh, absurd detective stories over a kind of William Orbit ambient soundscape kind of thing. And uh, a lot of spoken word Tom Waits stuff. William S. Burroughs was doing these records in the 90s with people like uh, Disposable Heroes of uh, Hypocrisy and some other hip-hop producers. And I just love that stuff, that mix of a story over kind of a low-key but very evocative soundscape. So whether that's outside doing it at a campfire where you have crickets and the fire crackling and coyotes howling in the distance and people kind of murmuring and cracking open beers and whatever that's that's a beautiful soundscape um and then in the studio i try to create something like like that mood mm-hmm. that i want it to be the perfect thing that you come across by accident driving by yourself at 10 p.m., midnight, whatever, on a two-lane in the middle of nowhere, and you start listening, and it starts to hypnotize you, and all of a sudden, you think you're seeing stuff in the sky or strange things leaping across the road. It's probably just a jackrabbit, but maybe not. You know, finally, Ken, I wanted to ask you about community radio. I think you were quote. I'm going to, you know, butcher this quote, but you were quoted in The Guardian, you know, saying something about NPR and that, you know, <laughs> that it's not, you know, beautiful or fun or romantic. Yes. And I'm butchering this because you were talking about something else. You weren't even talking about NPR, but it struck me because community radio is something I think a lot about being here. And being the news and public affairs director, I wonder what direction we're going in. You know, what's our role? Do we serve the audience information, stuff they need to know today, the wildfire that's breaking out, you know, on the mountains? Like, that's really important. Or do we take kind of a turn and go into, you know, collecting stories of our community? I think you got to do it all. For for so many small communities, mm-hmm. There's very little local media. Whenever you look at um, newspaper industry sites, which is, oh, another 100 dailies Mm -hmm. became once a week or twice a week, and 100 weeklies disappeared, but they're going to have a website. You know, just, and so many publishers threw away their entire business Mm -hmm. to try to game Facebook and, that was a that was a losing proposition. That was never going to happen because Facebook doesn't care if if journalists are covering your school boards and your town hall meetings and county soup meetings. They're fine if some unhinged nut is writing you know, 
300 words of illiterate gibberish and posting that on Facebook, and that's, that's your local content. So that's crucial, and I think people in small towns um, rely on community radio stations, even if it's a commercial station, as long as it's got some kind of local news. So my station's a community station, but it's, it's for-profit, and I don't love the music they play. They're, I don't even know what the format is. It's like hot. A hot ace, not air conditioning. Hot, hot adult contemporary. Which I don't know. I don't even know what it is. It's like <laughs> songs that were hits eight years ago. Sure, sure, um, yeah, yeah. Is is very bizarre. Uh, but I guess some people like it. Um, for a nonprofit community radio station, the variety of music, the variety of programming. Like the live theater stuff that you all do. I mean, that's a. Who else is going to do that? NPR's not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if if NPR came in and bought that bought this station or I buy, do they buy things? No, I think they just sort of absorb they, them. Yeah, we become them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you know, mm-hmm. goodbye weird music. And, you know, hello, three hours of the splendid table or some god awful thing of rich yuppies salivating over, oh, it's a $400 truffle. <laughs> They're, they don't speak to working people. They don't speak to artists who work for a living. They don't speak to kids who like weird music or grown-ups who like weird music. They speak to the lowest common denominator of rich yuppies. And you listen to their sponsorships and you want to jump out a window. You know? and today we're brought to you by uh, you know, Facebook, Archer Midland Daniels, Chevron, uh, and the poison industry. <laughs> Thanks for supporting public radio. So... Public radio, I mean, NPR, I don't, I don't even think of that as public radio now. That's a different kind of corporate radio. So what you, what you all do and what every station that, that Desert Oracle is on, we're on about 15 or 16 stations now, and they are all the most interesting spot on the dial. You heard it here, folks. You're tuned in to the most interesting spot on the dial. KZMU Moab Community Radio. That's Ken Lane of Desert Oracle and Desert Oracle Radio, heard on our airwaves every Saturday night at 9 p.m. Listen tomorrow night right after the Radio Play Festival at Star Hall. That is sure to be something fun and beautiful and romantic, all made possible by your community. It'll be radio like you've never seen before. Call us up to get the info or read about it in the show notes, and see you there. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Arches National Park launched their pilot timed entry system this week. Doug McMurdo of the Times Independent has more from their coverage. Well, we had reporter Sophia Fisher um, on the ground, so to speak, at the park uh, as they launched the time entry reservation system. And uh, one day does not um, a study make, but it looks like it got off to a really good start. Most of the people uh, were very pleased with uh, how quickly they got into the park and 
Uh, most of them embraced the idea of uh, making a reservation so it would guarantee mm-hmm. that they could get in. So I would say that uh, between the comments from the uh, the visiting public and uh, people uh, with the Park Service uh, on duty that day, that uh, it went out remarkably well. And I, I think um, when you look back on it, you know, the, the Times Independent and um, the Sun and the radio stations have all done a really good job getting the word out. But the mm-hmm. Park Service, they went international with their campaign, and they really did a, a great job. Uh, Patty Trapp and, and her crew at the at Arches, they just did a great job getting the word out. It seemed like um, most of the people in line that, that day knew that, that they needed to have a reservation. So yeah. a few people got turned away um, mm-hmm. because they didn't. But um, you know what? The park didn't have to close at 9 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning like it has been the case uh, for the last couple of years. So that's good. Right. I'm recalling, I feel like there was an article in the Times Independent not too long ago. This is before the timed entry system was implemented that they had already had to close the gate at least once this season. They, they closed it a week earlier this year than okay. they did in 2021, which was uh, – a record year mm-hmm. for visitation and cl- they're closing earlier. In fact, I, r- I ran into, um, Patty Trap. We, we seem to be on the same city market schedule. So I, I saw her in the corn on the cob section and um, uh, we spoke a little bit like you do when you see people you know in the grocery store. Uh-huh. And uh, she said that they had to close, I believe, at uh, 9.40 or 9.45, okay. which was um, uh-huh. the earliest that they had right. to close in a while. But so far, they haven't had to do that. Things are going smoothly. Things are going smoothly. You know? For me, the proof, in the, the proof in the pudding will be if if congestion at the park park eases mm-hmm. does that necessarily mean that congestion in town is going to ease yeah I, I think that you know the the highway 191 widening project mm-hmm. really alleviated a lot of that yeah. uh, you know between the north part of town and downtown uh, a lot of that was alleviated but i my hope is that congestion overall Right. reduces and we don't know yet like you said we don't know if that how it affects town yet we don't know how it affects you know other areas maybe right. people are going to other places maybe they're going to Canyonlands or blm right well there's there's evidence that um, overcrowding at arches uh, benefited Canyonlands. Mm-hmm. I, I believe they had a couple hundred thousand more mm-hmm. visitors mm-hmm. in 2021 than they did in 2020 mm-hmm. so yeah um overall i mean if you if you're going to improve the park experience for for tourism i think that should be the ultimate goal and in in, in that regard i think that they are certainly on the right track anything else to mention about this piece the only thing i have to say is kind of anecdotal and there's been a lot of questions out there on whether or not locals are subject to being and we are we don't get special privileges just for being local we don't get that local pass um i do know that if you are indigenous um you get entry to the park whenever. Right. There's a lot of news in the Times Independent this week. Where do you want to take us next? Well, I'm, I know that you already covered USU Moab uh, ribbon cutting because I see your photo on the front page. <laughs> Doug sneakily put my photo on the front page. Thank you. With Joe Kingsley. So you're in really yeah. good company. Great. And we also have a, a photo that does a pretty accurate job depicting the size of the crowd that showed up. It was yeah. uh, uh, really impressive. It was, uh, I thought, Liana Etchberger, uh, Vice President and Professor Leona Etchberger did an outstanding job um, mm. giving credit where credit is due and, and honoring the indigenous people who were here first mm-hmm. and all of the uh, the philanthropists, you know, large and small who, who chipped in. And, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful building, too. Yeah. What really did you good. think of it? You know, it's I, I toured it um, when it was under construction. Okay. 
And the construction superintendent had a, a laptop that gave you a, like a 3D, this is what it's going to look like when uh-huh. we're done. Okay. And it was just gorgeous, right? Yeah. But it's all computer generated. Yeah. Um, remarkably, uh, it is very much like that presentation, oh, wow. that digital presentation. Mm-hmm. It's a good looking building. It really mm-hmm. is. And I thought it was very nice that I felt like, um, you know, throughout the events, Liana Etchberger and others were emphasizing that USU really wants this to be the community's building or feel at home at USU. Right, you know? right. And, you know, there's just so many benefits to a college yeah. campus and expanding the campus. I, I know that a lot of parents of um, current and future Red Devils um, know they might be able to keep their kids home a few more years now speaking of keeping your kids home a few more years um tell us what's going on with housing at moab city oh well you're not going to believe this but we have a housing issue in grand county (laughs) and um you know i give the city council of moab uh, a lot of credit for thinking outside the box Mm -hmm. first they buy walnut lane and um, they're struggling to uh, to get an 80 unit uh housing complex built there and now they're trying to uh build into their development ordinances um, requirement that all uh, developers in R3 and R4 of multifamily housing developments set aside 42.5% of the units for workforce housing. Bold move for local government. You know, we're always saying government never does anything but taxes, but here's a chance. There's a, here's an example of government, yeah. you know, making, in my mind, bold moves mm-hmm. to try to address a very serious problem. Mm-hmm. And um, what happened was uh, the real estate agencies or uh, realtors got a hold of it and they balked and the legislature Mm-hmm. got in and legislatures got involved and I'm sure there were warnings and concerns mm-hmm. and probably veiled threats. So Mayor um, Joette Langanese uh, said right off the bat that they were not going to take action mm-hmm. on this until they can meet with uh, lawmakers and realtors and address those concerns. But, yeah. you know, this is just one more example. It seems to me that Utah lawmakers are, are uh, including our own representatives in the Senate and the State House, are just um, openly hostile to Grand County. It just seems that we can't catch a break. Everything we try to do to improve the quality of life for the people who live here, um, they shut down and they do it with a hammer. They don't do it with um, uh, soft gloves whatsoever. It's just a hammer. And um, I don't know what we can do to get them to work with us a little bit more uh, sincerely. It's a little bizarre to me because we are facing such a huge housing crisis that in Moab City's own documents, city staff have said, you know, without finding housing for the workforce, we will no longer be able to function as essential services, you know, just speaking for the government itself, not let alone, you know, uh, all the industry that we have, you know, in our community. Um, When when you have nurses and and teachers Mm -hmm. living in cars, Mm -hmm. That's a problem. The the lawmakers, they and this certainly isn't um, germane only to Utah, but they talk out of both sides of their mouth. They they say, yes, this is a problem. This is so, such, such a problem. We have to do something about mm-hmm. it. Oh, but not that mm-hmm. or that or that or that. So I, I just don't know. I don't know how you yeah. solve that riddle, but it is a riddle. So negotiations are ongoing. As Doug, as you explained, this is uh, related to the f- over 40 percentage that Moab City is, is thinking of uh, placing as a requirement for new housing developments in Moab in the R3 and R4 zones. Right. 
set aside for workforce housing or for people who have a history of working here in Moab. Um, you know, it sounds like they are up against a deadline. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's why it, uh, there's so much frustration in town. And frustration is clearly the, the word to use. The planning commission met uh, at their regular meeting and in a five-to-one vote with uh, Becky Wells voted against it. They they wanted to go with the 42.5%. City council had a, a, a special meeting. Mm-hmm. They didn't even want to wait to the regular meeting. Yeah. They they met on March 31st. Mm-hmm. And um, Mayor Langanese, um, to her credit, she wants to work with uh, state uh, folks with the state and local realtors. Um, she announces right off the bat that there, there's not probably not going to be any action taken. You could just feel the mm. the air leave mm. the mm-hmm. council chambers. You could just feel it. It was it was really tough to take. Yeah. Anything else to mention about Ashley Button's piece in the TI this week? No, I would just encourage people, um, regardless of what their opinion on this is, and, and I appreciate all opinions, and I understand where people are coming from on both sides of this, but let the council know what your what your concerns are. Call the city and let them know, hey, I think you should do this. I don't think you should do this. Give them a clear picture mm-hmm. of, of how the community feels about this, yeah. and I think that will help guide them as they go forth to uh, do battle with lawmakers. Now, finally, Doug, do you want to take us inside the paper to the county? Commission? I do. I would like to introduce Josie Kovash as the latest uh, Grand County Commissioner. She was appointed um, Tuesday night at the county's first in-person meeting in over two years uh, to replace Gabe Wojtek, who was um, appointed to be the clerk auditor. Okay. So there was a lot of support for uh, for Josie. There was uh, Bill Winfield and um, Dan Stenta uh, also put their hats in. Uh, they didn't take Bill Winfield because he's already in a competitive race mm-hmm. for the um, at-large seat, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about Dan Stenta, uh, why he wasn't picked. But um, Josie was uh, given the nod in large part because she uh, – she lost a razor, razor thin election um, to the city council last year. So uh, she's she's got popularity and respect in the community, and um, the the commission is full again. And um, I wish her the best of luck. Um, it's and I just want to point out that Sophia Fisher in her reporting says that Kovash's appointment makes Grand County's uh, legislative body the majority female for the first time in history. First time in history, four women and three men. All right. Doug McMurdo, editor at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. A new incentive could attract more film projects to rural Utah. Maggie McGuire of the Moab Sun News has more from their coverage. So my partner and I, one of the things that we've really liked doing in the last, I don't know, like four or five years is Mm -hmm. finding like very strange or independent movies that were filmed here in Moab in the 60s and 70s Mm. and 80s and 90s Um, and watching those and trying to like figure out where they were filmed. And they're awesome. Highly recommend. I have specific recommendations if you'd like to email me. Do you have a few gems on the top of your head? Um, Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone is a really good one with uh, baby Molly Ringwald. Uh, She's like 12. Also, Ernie from Ghostbusters is in it. It's a solidly good, weird sci-fi movie. Mm -hmm. Pretty shockingly high production values. Mm -hmm. And like very funny where like, you know, like it's like Fisher Towers being like Mars. You Mm -hmm. know, it's it's very satisfying and awesome. Nice. Uh, Another really great one. And I'm sure people who are listening 
Um, if you participated in filming these, reach out to me. <laughs> I'm so fascinated. Um, another one that I love is called Nightmare at Noon about a scientist who like poisons the water and turns everyone into zombies. Um, and that's filmed actually right here in town. There's a whole shootout sequence um, at Star Hall. It's really, really cool that this was like a kind of a smaller town. And like a lot of people got mm-hmm. like very hands on experience with, the you know, a large industry. It's super cool. Mm-hmm. So you love movies. I love them. <laughs> you love movies that were shot in Moab. So good. And we might have more in this region. Yes, we might have more in uh-huh. this region now. Um, because the Utah State Legislature in this last legislative session reinstated Film incentives. So yeah, film incentives are basically subsidies that are given to, um, in this case, film productions to sort of attract them to come to Utah and spend their money Mm -hmm. here. Previously, one of the challenges of film incentives, not only in Utah, but other places, is like, how do you structure it so that um, attracting these productions actually does have a positive impact? We've all Mm -hmm. seen cool programs that don't have the actual... Um, intended impact and mm-hmm. you really want to make sure that the money that you are hoping that those productions are going to bring into the state actually gets into the hands of who you intended it to i think you kind of you know landed on um a mm-hmm. big critique of these film incentives is some states are getting away from them entirely mm-hmm. and other states are doubling down yeah you know san juan county commissioner bruce adams um not always known for being the biggest fan of Mm -hmm. subsidies in general Mm -hmm. you know he pointed out um (laughs) in a way that i find personally interesting Mm -hmm. that a lot of the bad reputation that these sort of subsidies have um, or these film incentives have um kind of comes from michigan where i'm from Mm -hmm. michigan was one of the first states to like really push um subsidies um in the 2000s and they wrote their law pretty bad i think after Mm -hmm. after some lobbying Mm -hmm. so that um production companies got these large tax rebates but there was no assurances within the law that they actually had to spend that money in the state so it was just kind of money for nothing yeah you know there's a lot of obvious reasons why um michigan kind of botched that Mm -hmm. but i think what Bruce Adams and obviously the um, state legislators that that passed this bill think is that they, they were able to think of a way to to make sure and structure the bill to ensure that again they they weren't just giving tax rebates for no reason that this was going to um, funnel money not only into the state but also like into parts of the state that need those dollars the most. So they've targeted, of course, um, smaller counties, counties like us, Grand, San Juan, um, you know, the Kanab area. Yeah. So right now, <laughs> Utah's tax incentive is a about a 20 to 25 percent tax rebate. But there is a cap on that of 8.3 million. So specific. So with this new piece of legislation that actually like raised that ceiling, but with the catch that 75% of the filming would have to be done in rural Utah. So I think that this is mostly to prevent, you know, people flying in just to Salt Lake and, mm-hmm. and filming in Park City, you know, mm-hmm. basically, I, yeah. you know, um, our reporter Rachel Fixon spoke to the Moab to Monument Valley Film Commissioner Biga Metzner. Shout out to Biga. Um 
who really was pretty confident and bullish that, you know, this was going to have a direct impact locally. So Biga, of course, um, talked to our state lawmakers, our local, you know, elected officials about one project in particular, which is um, maybe Rachel mentioned in the piece as well. Sure. Yeah. Kevin Mm -hmm. Costner. Yeah. So, you know, Kevin Costner was really um, explicit about, you know, with his experience in the film industry, how he thought that this would attract, you know, new productions and even included a reference to a potential project of his own that he intends to Mm -hmm. hopefully film in Utah. So that's, you know, likely to move forward. This bill, though, these incentives do have a sunset. This is an experimental Mm -hmm. phase for to see how this works in rural Utah and if it does, you know, help the economies in our local areas. I mean, Bruce Adams, you know, I think it's really interesting that he decided to be so public about this because he Mm -hmm. was pretty, to my recollection, pretty blunt that he was like, look, man, we need money. Like some of these rural counties don't have quite the luck that that Mm -hmm. Grand County has had to attract so many visitors. Um, So, you know, uh, some of these places with the decline of, you know, mining and sort of extractive industry, it's hard for them to find something to fall back on to sort of keep their economy going. And of course, San Juan County does stand to, uh, you know, have a lot of filming there because the scenery, Light Grand, Monument Valley. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like I say, you know, uh, San Juan County is our our interesting conjoined twin here in Grand County. And, you know, I say share the wealth. I'm hoping that, yes, we will see, you know, some Monument Valley and Mm -hmm. some interesting scenery from there. Maggie, you know, as a movie fan... As the, you know, publisher of the paper, <laughs> anything else to say about this piece in the Moab Sun News? Um, again, if you were involved in filming any weird movies here in Moab, reach uh-huh. out to me at The Sun. And I know you wanted to, before you go, um, shout out to some Grand County students or um, some yeah. Grand County, you know, programs that have recently won things. Absolutely. You know, at the paper, we really try to make sure that we're giving cred to all of like the awesome local youth that's around. But I wanted to take this moment just to be like Grand County High School students have been too awesome for our paper. We could not fit in all of the awesomeness. Uh, you know, at Grant County High School, we do have a piece about um, the Sterling Scholars mm. who excel at a specific discipline or subject and also do a whole leadership thing. Mm-hmm. They're amazing. Uh, quiz Bowl, crushing it. Debate team, amazing. Wow. So, you know, all of the sports teams are really rad. Wow. Um, and like I say, just killing it to an extent that we cannot quite catch up with at the newspaper. I I highly recommend that everyone, if you're uh, hanging around with an awesome high school student, ask them about it because they're doing really cool things. Okay, so there's so much going on that the the paper can't, you know, do a note about every single one. Couldn't fit fit it in. But there is, of course, coverage in the Mobson News. Anything to mention there? Yeah, one of the Sterling Scholar winners from Grand County, Tanyan Griffith, way to go actually uh, sent us a really nice write-up of of her experience, like working really Mm. hard with the um, other students from her area. And, Mm. you know, reading her piece is really nice because it gives you a little bit of insight into how hard these kids work. I really think that, like I say, not not being a parent myself, I still really enjoy reading about, like, the cool kids who are around here. Maggie McGuire, editor at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. 
You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.